Welcome to the podcast of the University of Massachusetts Amherst History Department's 2016-2017 to Feinberg Family Distinguished Lecture Series, The U.S. in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Today, October 26, 2016, we broadcast an evening of presentations and conversations with local and national voices on the theme, Resisting Police Violence in Springfield and Beyond, Mothers, Scholars, and Queer People of Color Speak Out. This event was hosted in collaboration with the Springfield Technical Community College Out Now, Arise for Social Justice, and Project Operation Change. Thank you for listening. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. My name is Anne Bad Emery, and I'm the Dean of the School of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at Springfield Technical Community College. On behalf of the President of STCC and the faculty and staff of the School of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences, it is my pleasure to welcome you to this evening's event entitled Resisting Police Violence in Springfield and Beyond. Mothers, Scholars, and Queer People of Color Speak Out. I would like to warmly welcome to STCC and also to thank Dr. Jessica Johnson and Dr. Marla Miller from the University of Massachusetts Amherst History Department, our guest conversationalists, Kisa Owens, Shea Quest, Andrea Ritchie, and Dr. Rhonda Y. Williams, and Dr. John Diffley, a faculty member of STCC's History Department, and coordinator of the General Studies Program at our college. UMass's History Department and STCC's History Department are co-sponsoring this, this evening's event along with the local groups Out Now, Arise for Social Justice, and Project Operation Change. I would like to warmly welcome members of these groups to our campus tonight as well. Dr. Diffley and Dr. Don, excuse me, Dr. Diffley and Don Perry, member of the Feinberg Planning Committee and founding director of Project Operation Change, will shortly give you more information about the collaboration between STCC's History Department and the University of Massachusetts History Department's Feinberg Family Distinguished Lecture Series that this evening is a part of. Tonight's presentation is very timely since it addresses issues across our nation that, through greater media scrutiny, have been brought to our attention. It is our hope that tonight's panelist talks provide everyone with a better understanding of what is happening from the viewpoint of our community groups. It is now my pleasure to introduce Dr. John Diffley from STCC's History Department. Hi, thank everybody for coming. I uh, just wanted to remind people there is a kids table back there uh, for, uh, with coloring books and stuff like that, and there are also uh, brochures out in the hallway. Uh, just wanted to get that out. Um, I also uh, wanted to thank everybody for coming, and I also wanted to uh, thank the donors for this series, uh, Kenneth Feinberg and Associates. Um, Feinberg series is a biennial uh, project between UMass uh, History Department um, and community partners. This year's series is on mass uh, incarceration. Uh, tonight's event is one of many, around almost two dozen uh, from 
the, uh, now in the fall as well as in the spring. Um, two events coming up that I just wanted to mention. Tomorrow, a conversation with Rhonda Williams uh, at 12 p.m. at uh, Herder Hall, 601 UMass. And then another one on November 1st, concentration camps American style, Japanese Americans and World War II. Uh, 5 p.m. again in Herder Hall, 601 at UMass. Um, so I also wanted to say on a personal note what uh, I'm so happy to be able to do this to collaborate and work with uh, UMass history, uh, especially the public history department. I'm a proud graduate of it and uh, this is great to be able to walk, work with Dr. Miller and uh, bring this to stick. Um, and I also wanted to say that uh, especially here at Stick, this is something uh, we are very interested in. Um, Many of us here, including Dr. Baron Emery, myself, and Vice President Rodriguez, we, we call this place home. Springfield is our home. So this is something that does hit uh, very close to home of, of importance to us. And on that, I just wanted to also just highlight some of the work of Dr. Rodriguez and uh, Nick Camerata, one of our other professors. Uh, several years back, they were impaneled by the Springfield City Council. Uh, to go and conduct hearings and interviews with uh, neighborhoods and groups about police community relations. And they actually provided a report uh, to the city to uh, try to uh, improve those. And so I just wanted to say that this is something we are very interested in. Um, and I don't want to take up too much time. I actually just wanted to uh, introduce Don Perry, who will be leading things. Uh, and yeah. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. By show of hands, how many people here from the Springfield area? Okay, shout out to the homies and welcome and all you visitors. We really appreciate you here. And one of the things that we, um, I really appreciate about uh, tonight's event is this is community inclusive, right? And so, um, as you heard about these Feinberg series, there's a lot going on. And <clears throat> it's great to be able to have not only uh, ac academia in the room, but people from the community. Because these issues, what we're talking about tonight, um, in, you heard uh, about Indian mass incarceration and overall aspects of mass incarceration affects all of us within our community. And <clears throat> I am from, from Springfield, 1983. I was legally lynched by a corrupt district attorney and a racist judge. I spent 18 years and seven months in prison and now I am awaiting pending hearings to be exonerated. So, I mean, truth is the ultimate weapon. And so what we're talking about here tonight, I'm, I'm also the founder of Project Operation Change, and what we're talking about tonight is <clears throat> power corrupts. And we need to advocate for more transparency and accountability. And when we're talking about the issues of police violence here in the Springfield area, we've all heard about the recent incidents about what's happening with our, in, within our community as far as, was it um, Detective Bigna, who threatened a young man and got caught on tape. And then there was the other instance where 12 officers jumped on four black men coming out of a bar restaurant. There, so all these issues were basically uh, tried to be swept under the rug. Thank God for social media, everything was exposed. And so here we are today, within the last couple of weeks, there have been various protests around this. And these protests coincide with whatever else, all the other stuff that's going on around the country. And so in that, it gives me great pleasure to 
introduce the panelists of people that we have tonight talking about the, the specific topic of resisting police violence in the Springfield area and beyond. And, but first, one of our panelists, she could not make it here tonight because she had suddenly had a family emergency, Ms. Uh, Maria Rivera's. Um, and she's the mother of Michael Viveris, who, as we know, was beaten and choked by police officers in 2010. But they attempted to cover it up by giving by um, falsely arresting him. But they they, they wind up selling. But in any event, uh, the idea is to have an event about experiences, perspectives, and activism of mothers and queer people of color who are in front and center within our communities, and to create a space where local folks are in a concerted conversation with people advocating for resistance to police violence on a national level. So it's not only imperative that we hear what our presenters have to say, but of paramount importance, each of us must equally pick up the gauntlet and figure out how we can actively engage in addressing this issue. So speaking about our <coughs> panelists tonight, one of the first person that I would like to uh, welcome is Ms. Keisha Owens. She's the mo mother of Delano, Walker, a Springfield teen, struck and killed in a traffic, in traffic during a confrontation with Springfield police. Keisha Owens. Okay. Next, I would like to welcome Ms. Andrea Ritchie, attorney, writer, Soros Justice Fellow. Chip uh, is a black lesbian police misconduct attorney and organizer who is engaged in extensive research, writing, litigation, organizing, and advocacy around policing of women and LGBT people of color. Angie. Rhonda Y. Williams, scholar and community activist, is a Cleveland-based scholar, activist, and, act and author. She's also one of the Cleveland Eight, a voice of a voice for justice in the Tamara Rice case. London. And next we have Ms. Shay Shay Quest of Out Now, a young lady that I have a lot of growing admiration for. She's a member of the BLM 413 and a community organizer with Out Now. And so, and on that note, I think that we can have our first panelist take the stage. Your first one. Okay. That's Ronnie Williams. How's everybody? So, I'll do a 10 minute and then we can go up together. Sister Kitchen. Okay. So, everybody doing okay? Yes. Right, we're here talking about some serious issues. And what we were tasked with is to give a, Andre and I give a kind of 10 minute uh, opening and then uh, each of us will interview and have a conversation with and then a dialogue uh, with you all, the audience, around these issues in a, in a deeper way. So, the way I want to start is actually not by doing a kind of formal 10-minute kind of moment um, talk, if you will, but more of like of a performance talk. And what I call these are monologues. So I'm going to do a monologue for you. 
And this helps me really to kind of bring together the local and the national to introduce you to me, to kind of let you see inside of my head and what I care about, how I connect to folks. There will be moments in here that are me, and there will be moments in here when you hear I that will not be me, and you will know it's not me, and there will be moments you won't know it's not me. And so it's about how do we connect to each other and find the moments within ourselves for solidarity and allyship at the same time, understanding that we can't conflate our own kind of position and condition and identity with those of others, right? Because then it cheapens the experience and it doesn't allow us to dig in a deep way to really understand and try to um, follow and, and be in the space of understanding other people's pain and trauma and understanding how we can move together to transform not only individual lives but systems, okay? So I call this, everybody with me still? I work yeah, on call yeah. response too, so y'all good? Yeah. Okay. So I call this I Journey to We Activism. Amherst, Redub, and Five Acts. I am not even near a distant glimmer when the ancestors began to wage the struggle. When Ida B. Wells went to East St. Louis and wrote a red record in Southern Hearts to call attention to the lynching of black people. When James Baldwin penned the fire next time and Lorraine Hansberry a raisin in the sun, when Malcolm X spoke about the ballot or the bullet at Cory United Methodist Church in Cleveland in 1964. When Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at Lafayette High School in Cleveland in 1967 lambasted the crude methods of police repression. I say some. I say some of we were not quite a glimmer when the ancestors, civil rights activists, all used in black and brown power activists and black and brown feminist activists and confronted, confronted, confronted white supremacy and racial terror and police brutality and gender oppression and capitalism and economic injustice. And that state sanction, state sanction, state sanction, state sanction, state sanction. Sanction, 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 violence. And white citizens and white citizen councils and red squads and police and COINTELPRO and exclusion and repression. And still, they the ancestors if they lived and were not shot dead in their beds, continue to shake their worlds awake. I am making my way to the planet from the stars to Baltimore. A descendant of the moon and the sun, the child of Boone and Jenny and the sister of Nat Jr. At a time when black and brown people were organizing at the grassroots, everyday people daring to dream, to act, to change their conditions, they be the same ones, they be the same ones, they be the same ones who witness, as we now witness, school and education and residential and employment and health and legal inequalities, they be, they be, the actual and geographical ancestors are the ones now suffering from predatory lending and housing foreclosures and infant mortality and low-wage jobs and poverty and markets that put profit above people in police brutality and unjust criminal justice systems and, 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 huh? While downtowns are looking pristine and glossy and new and are growing and are protected, where is the protection and care for the people? What people? Add to birth, IV, 
Abigail's daughter. Abigail Black used Dean Rambunctious, who was almost sent without parental knowledge by a white teacher to an alternative school for hard to handle you. I'd be a woman she heard hers growing up learning about the very real, sometimes shocking realities of school push-out of young girls, school police, I say school police flipping girls and their desks on their heads, I say a white male police officer putting his knees in a bathing suit clad young black girls back after an argument with a white woman who called her out of her name at a pool party. I say I am fed up with the criminalizing of youth, the selling of youth to fill juvenile detention centers, the selling of youth to fill juvenile detention centers and a normalized notion of cops in schools. I mean, a sister, a Baltimorean, a university student whose white professor told her she wrote too black only to become the valedictorian of her university undergraduate class at the time, the first black ever that university had in 187 years. I'd be the first PhD in my family to offer the politics of public housing, listening to black sisters, elders, welfare rights, activists, single mothers, raising children in public housing, like Cody Baker and Shirley Wise, whose society, including Kim Folk of Color, whose society, including Kim Folk of Color, demonized as breeders of social ills, somehow living large on a meager amount of the public dole, while we, the people, have underwritten with our tax dollars for real. 1.2 billion in lawsuits against rogue police officers and bailed out Wall Street and funneled money to help private developers and private prison moguls and charter school boondoggers and corporations, many of whom have benefited from the public dole. Way more than any low-income person down the street trying to make ends meet. I say, can someone define state violence? I'd be a scholar activist, the first black person ever promoted to full professor in my academic department in Cleveland, Ohio, the first, the first, the first, and I belong, I belong to a criminalized people, criminalized because they were born the way they were born. I am a friend, I am an aunt, I am a cousin of people with police records and criminal convictions, some navigate privatized prisons and collateral consequences, even with time served, make you want to holler and throw up with your hands. At three, a pause. Echo, 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 four. I be we. I am 137 times angered. Count with me. One. Count with me. One. One. Two. Two. Three. Three. Four. Four. Five. Five. Six. Six. Seven. Eight. Nine. Ten. Eleven. Twelve. Thirteen. Fourteen. 15, 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56, 57, 58, 59, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56, 57, 58, 59, 
Strange fruit, black bodies swinging from the poplar trees. A provocation. I am a black sister friend. I am a black woman, say her name. I am Rakia Boyd. I am Sandra Bland. I am Natasha McKenna. I am Tanisha Anderson in the midst of a mental health crisis who breathes her last breath thrust into a prone position by police in November 2014 in Cleveland, Ohio. I am, I am, I am too often forgotten. I am Samaya C.C. Dove, trans woman stabbed 40 times. I'm Brandi Blesso, fourth trans woman killed on October, or in October, on October, in October, on October, in October, on October, in October, 2016, Cleveland, the fourth trans woman killed since 2012 in Cleveland, 23rd and the country in 2016. I am, I am too often forgotten, too often forgotten, I am too often forgotten, I'm too often forgotten. I am mothers in pain and protests. I am Maria V, mother of Michael Ramirez, unfairly targeted by Springfield police. I am Kisha O, mother of Delano Walker, snatched from the planet at 15 years old by Springfield police. I am a funnel, wondering why the world who received 25 complaints over the course of his career and who just this year was captured on video about beating and threatening to plant drugs and taunting to teens because of their Hispanic heritage while they were being held in a jail. So it's still on the Springfield Police Force. I said I am befuddled, wondering why this detective and six other Springfield area officers, seven of them who are together. Breathe, echo, pause, echo, 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 pause, breathe. Seven of them together have a total of 131 civilian complaints. Yep. 71 of them allegations of excessive force. Why are they still, I am befuddled, why are they still, I am befuddled? Why are they still employed as Springfield law enforcement officers? And can someone just tell me who is policing the police? Mm -hmm. yep. Yep. I need to echo a solo Hutchins from Springfield at a protest on October 21st, 2016. Quote, it needs to be known that police brutality happens. It needs to be known that police brutality happens. It needs to be known that police brutality happens. And people need to stand up for themselves. Stand up for themselves. Stand up. For themselves. Stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up for themselves. They're scared to press charges or go into give them a board. I'd be the story. I'd be the story beyond tragedy, unspeakable. I'd be the spoken truth. Because all around us, people are treated like refugees. This is the stuff that we must confront. This is the struggle that requires truth seekers and dedication and resources and allies and forethought and policy change and boots on the ground, boots on the ground, and take the blinders off. I said we must be able to see and diagnose power and see our own I am's and the we I am's in the we mono we log I am's in the we and as for me can you now see 
I remain a walking protest, always in progress on a journey for justice. So now, can you tell me who are you and what you want to do? Thank you. So this is our time now to, to have a conversation. And again, you've sort of heard from me how I'm situated, whether you know which parts are me or which parts are not me. You know I'm not Sister Kisha Owens. Um, and you heard me kind of evoke her, evoke her name and you evoke Delano's name, Delano Walker, who was snatched from the planet at the age of 15. And so I want to ask Sister Owens if she can tell us her story um, and share with us um, why she decides to share her story, given the pain and the trauma connected to it. On a summer night um, in July of 2009, my 15-year-old son was out with a couple of friends um, to get some McDonald food, which is about a couple of houses, um, excuse me. It's on the corner of the street that we live on, basically. Um, it was a nice night, so they had just came from playing basketball, and I sent him out to grab him and his friends um, a couple of burgers. Um, being 15, they saw a young lady and decided, I'm sorry, a couple of ladies, and, and decided that they were going to follow them in order to get their telephone number. <laughs> um, during their chase after these young girls, um, the girls deviated another way and they decided that they were going to just take the long way back home, which put them um, on East Columbus Ave in Springfield. Um, during that time, there was a car lot on the corner of um, East Columbus Ave and the bottom of Main Street, uh, where people pretty much could walk through as a, like a path to get to East Columbus. Um, my son, who was actually walking, and the other two friends were on bikes. And as they cut through, my son was on his cell phone talking to another young lady. Um, <laughs> As they came through, an unmarked car pulled up and stopped them in their tracks, um, pulling into the driveway as they, had, as they had approached the sidewalk of the car dealership. Um, they got out the, the officers got out the car in unmarked police clothing um, and began to, um, I guess in some words, harass the kids, asking them what they were doing. Um, they were told that they weren't doing anything. Um, unknown to my son and his friends, during 
the, the summer, there had been some car break-ins. Um, and these police officers claimed that these boys who had on basketball shorts, no backpacks, um, and t-shirts that they could be robbing the new cars off the car lot or breaking into them. So they were, the one, two of the boys were asked to sit on the curb while my son was still standing. Um, he was told to get off his phone, which he felt he didn't need to get off his phone because he hadn't done anything wrong. Um, at that time, the officer started to use profanity um, towards my son, and that became a, a kind of a back and forth. And finally, the officer um, snatched the phone from my son. And as he approached my son, um, I was told that, because I wasn't there, I was told that my son was pushed, a 15-year-old child was pushed by a police officer grabbed by his neck, and as he grabbed him by his neck, my son kind of flared him off as to, you know, get off of him. As he did that, the officer still came towards him, um, walking him backwards out into the road, and at that time still came at him, and a car came and struck him and ran him over and dragged him, and he was caught underneath the car um, and he was killed instantly. Mm. Um, just the first, my first thought was um, even when you are apprehended by police, I thought their, their, their first instinct is or their first protocol is to make sure whoever they are pulling over um, is in a safe location, but I guess that just wasn't part of what they were going to do that night. Mm -hmm. And that's what leads me here. Mm -hmm. And why do, you, why do you tell, I mean, clearly no one can fully understand, right? No one can fully feel what you're feeling unless they have a child that they have also lost or have a loved one or someone close who's finding themselves in this situation. Why do you continue to tell the story? Why be on this stage tonight to tell this story? I, I, I truly believe and I had to learn to believe that sometimes all things happen for a reason. My son was a blessing, born on my birthday, born at home, as soon as we got him outside from you know, being born at home on my bedroom floor, it started snowing. So I have to believe that my son was a blessing and that, you know, even though it's, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow that he's gone, I know that he was here for a reason and I'm here for a reason. So mm -hmm. that is why. And what would you tell folks is that reason? What do you hope your story helps people understand or conveys or, you know, what's the, what's the message, the meaning, the purpose? Well, I don't, I, my own, for my own personal thoughts is, mm -hmm. you know, we, we need, we need police regardless, it, you know, some of them are not doing right. I don't think it's the, the uniform itself. I think it's the person behind the uniform, mm -hmm. you know, um, whether he targeted my son out of the other two kids that was with him, 
I, I, don't, I don't feel that way. I just feel like it was a person who did something wrong. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. Um, the, the only thing I can say to anybody that might go through anything like this is uh, the only way I can get, could have got through it, through it was to find some, not to look at the negative of it and, and to, it, as much as it sounds crazy, to look at the positive and what it could bring. You know, I still had to live my life. I still have five other children, you know, that I have that I have to, that I am responsible for. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't look at all, and I don't watch the news at all because mm -hmm. I, I don't, I just don't feel like they shed any good light on anything. Mm -hmm. So for me, I just, you know, I live day by day, you know. Um, I found what I feel peace within what happened to my son. Mm -hmm. Yes, does it hurt? Yes, did I cry today? Did I want to be here, stomach and knots? You know, yes I did and no I didn't, you know, so. And you said the, 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 the positive. You said the positive. Um, what, what's, what's, what's the positive? Help, help me and others understand, what's the positive that's, that's, come, that's come out of this? It, it sounds, I'm, I've had my own, you know, um, my own life, you know, um, struggles and battles with it. Um, and I mean, I, I, I did, I stayed in bed, I, I didn't talk, I, you know, I could probably down a whole bottle of wine in a half in one day. It, 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 it takes you to a whole nother place. So, you know, for me, I had to think about all the things that I had left and all the things that, you know, I, I had to give to my kids and things that I wasn't done doing yet. And I just know that, you know, with God and my son, I, I call him my angel, God's right hand man. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of things that's, that has happened in my life since he's been gone that I only can say came from him. Mm -hmm. I, I, I tell people, anybody that I've honestly told the story to, you know, when I first came to um, accepting that my son was gone, I felt like, you know, a lot of people get hit by cars. Um, you know, and they survive. A lot of people get shot. Uh, they, they survive. A lot of traumatic things happen to people and they survive. You know, I feel like at that moment, God gave my son a choice. Whether you live here with your family and struggle because you're going to be hurt or you come home with me and I'll make sure that your family is covered. Mm -hmm. So that, that was my positive out of it. Mm -hmm. So you said that, you know, the, you know, the officer, it's not the uniform, but it's, it's the person behind the uniform. And that you felt it was this individual officer who just didn't do what he needed to do, or what he should have been doing, or what maybe what he was trained to do, or I don't know, maybe I don't know how he was trained, so that's a whole nother issue. But, um, you know, the, from the, the city I live in right now, Cleveland, Ohio, um, we have a Department of Justice investigation um, report that was handed down that resulted in this consent decree uh, settlement agreement um, in which they found a pattern and practice and a culture of excessive use of force and unconstitutional policing. And we see this going on around the nation. Um, how do you, how do you, have you thought about, you know, 
is it just an individual officer? Do you give much thought to that? Is it just an individual officer? Or is this something much more systemic that's going on in society that has a, a long, deep history that your son found himself at the behest of? I, I don't, I personally don't think it's just, you mm -hmm. know, officers that are Caucasian that's causing problems. I think people put on a uniform and they feel like they have a little bit more power than if they didn't have that uniform. Mm -hmm. I also read an article in the New York Times once that um, it focused on um, police and what they perceive as something that's really you know, nothing, mm -hmm. you know, um, their perception of things because it seems like they, they, they have this little bit of power is, it's a little bit heightened and they're not focused on what the real situation is. Mm -hmm. You know, just because a young man has on a hoodie, that doesn't mean that he's going to rob somebody. Um, just because my son had on a white t-shirt and happened to have braids in his hair, that doesn't mean that he was robbing a, you know, um, breaking into a car. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't, I think it, the responsibility lies on the person themselves, but I also felt like for me and my situation that obviously this officer wasn't taught right, mm -hmm. that uh, the training that they're, that they're given, maybe it's not the best training because he actually was, he's not an officer that is regularly on the street. Mm -hmm. He actually, um, this particular officer actually um, worked in the station um, I want to say fixing the radios and, um, um, and doing uh, the switchboard. Mm -hmm. So um, at that time, I, I want to say that he was being, he was, he was with a superior officer mm -hmm. and he was supposed to be like on a training. Mm -hmm. So that I, I don't feel like, you know, even that superior officer should have stepped in. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say I don't feel like they were trained well enough or they're being trained well enough mm -hmm. because I mean a, a 15 year old kid is you know he he wasn't in in and by no you know by no right do you deserve to hurt anybody but he had nothing in his hand but a cell phone mm -hmm. you know um it, it just didn't make any sense, and it doesn't make any sense. But I still feel it's, it's, it's all about the training that they get, mm -hmm. you know, and who's training them, and are they ready to be out on the street? Because obviously this officer wasn't ready to be out on the street yet. Mm -hmm. So, and you mentioned, you know, you mentioned in, in your narrative what you were just saying right now about, you know, your son having braids and, and wearing a white shirt, or if somebody has a hoodie on, um, it, how do you how do you think about the the ways in which young black um, persons uh, persons of color are criminalized in society? Have you given much thought to that? And do you think your son was a victim of kind of a larger force of the ways in which black people are seen and black and brown people are seen, or people who just aren't a part of the the mainstream, quote unquote, whatever that is, are seen in society? As for me and my son. I, I didn't give it much thought. I, I just felt like something was done wrong. I honestly, whether you looked at him a certain way or not, did not, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't make up for the fact that he was a 15 year old kid mm -hmm. and you backed him out into the middle of a street. Mm -hmm. um, that, I don't, I don't think color, race, nor creed, it, it, it doesn't make a difference to me. You know, that was my son. That was somebody's child. You know, it was a life, period. That, that, that's all I, I cared about. 
you know, and like, as I mentioned, I don't watch the news and I, and, I, and I don't watch the news because I feel like, you know, everything is always the bad stuff about things. So I tend not to watch the news because it, it brings me down. So I don't watch the news. So I can't, I can't say for anybody else what, you know, how they feel about a certain situation. Mm -hmm. That may be so for their situation, mm -hmm. but for my situation and in order for me to live and for order for me to wake up every morning and feel okay about it, I just feel like somebody did a, a, a very bad job. Mm -hmm. that, that's how I feel. Mm -hmm. What kind of things do you think need to happen to change the conditions um, in, in Springfield? I mean, in policing, I mean, we, we have other cases, right, that are going on now that I came in, that I came into, right, I'm learning new, some of the things that are, are happening here in Springfield, just because I'm, I'm here having this conversation with you, um, you know, the, the uh, 12 officers that are under investigation for 2015 incident with the four gentlemen who coming out of a bar, right, um, the officers I mentioned, the seven officers who have 131 um, uh, civilian complaints against them, um, amongst them with 71 of them being excessive use of force. There's definitely things going on in the Springfield Police Department that goes beyond one individual officer, right? Um, what are some of the things that, that you think need to happen um, here to um, provide safety and security for people who look like you, your son? Well, I'm gonna the age of your son. I, I include the, the man that was involved in my um, son's incident. Um, and I felt like he, he should have been held more responsible. He still has a job, mm -hmm. you know. He can go to work every day, and I've, I've even seen him in the same area. Mm. So you, you, you know, I, I think those individuals should be immediately taken off the force. I don't think it should be a question of, of rather, um, you need a trial or, or anything because obviously a trial didn't do anything for the officer in my case mm -hmm. you know um why should they be any different from anybody else who don't wear the uniform mm -hmm. if you know if for instance if my kid gets into a fight at school he gets arrested you know what's the difference between these officers that they're they're still human they're mm -hmm. still men you know, what's the difference between them that they can't immediately be arrested? Mm -hmm. What was the purpose for them jumping, you know, um, the, these men? Mm -hmm. You know, the, I, I don't feel like their blue uniforms or whichever color uniform they have on, I don't feel that gives them the right. And I don't feel it gives them the right, even if they don't, if they're not in uniform and they have a badge and a gun, it doesn't give them a right, but they're still human and they should be prosecuted just like, you know, a civilian would be prosecuted mm -hmm. for whatever they've done. Mm -hmm. what, what, does, what, what does justice look like to you? You know, there's folks who say, okay, you got a, you know, $1.3 million, you know, payout lawsuit, you know, was successful, right? And that, that should be, you know, justice, you know, just kind of be satisfied, right? We heard this with Tamir Rice's family in, in Cleveland, Ohio, where they got a $6.5 million. And the, the union head, uh, the police union head told them maybe they should use some of their money to train kids about playing with toy guns, you know? Um, <laughs> what's justice look like for you? Well, it wasn't 1.3 million, mm -hmm. I tell you that. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, my justice, and, and I said it then, my justice would have been my son walking through my doors. Mm -hmm. You know, there is no justice. Money don't make you happy. My bills are just the same as everybody else's bills. Mm -hmm. Money runs out. The, I, could, I still can't see my son. He would have been 22, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I can't see my son. I can't hold him. That money, I still had to pay the electric bill, the gas bill, kids going to school, you know, um, activities. I still had to live regardless. You know, I still work. So, I mean, the money was nothing. They, they, they don't get me wrong, because a lot of people will say, you know, they, they paid you a lot of money. But it does not take the place of my kid. Mm -hmm. It will never take the place of my kid mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I can't get that back. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. I mean, there is, in, in, actu in, in actuality, it wasn't even $1.3 that they were supposed to um, award us. After everything, it almost was $2 million that mm -hmm. they were supposed to award us. Mm -hmm. And what happens is the city, um, well, first the mayor came on and said that he was going to fight it. That, that was number one, mm -hmm. um, which I thought was kind of... I thought it was kind of ugly, but I, I mean, I, I guess you, you back your people that work in your city. You know, what, you know I, I, never even got a, I never even got an apology from the city. And, and I don't feel like an apology is, is an admission of guilt. It's a, a person lost a life. Mm -hmm. A 15-year-old kid is now deceased. Mm -hmm. An apology, you know, would have made a whole big difference. Mm -hmm. You know, no apology. But it's okay. You you can keep that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, he wanted to dispute the the amount of money that you know we were actually supposed to be awarded, um, and and when it came down to it, it was basically um, there's a law to where you can only well here in Massachusetts I would say because I don't know about anywhere else that they could only go up to a certain amount which I thought wasn't fair. Mm -hmm. And I felt as though this man, he wasn't even being touched. It was the city. People that, you know, people that, people money that had nothing to do with it. You know, mm -hmm. taxpayer money, right. like you're taking from the city to, to, to pay for this man, but you didn't touch anything of his. Mm -hmm. You didn't touch his paycheck. Mm -hmm. You didn't touch his pension. You didn't touch his job. So now we as a city, like even still, I pay taxes. So what did I do? Just pay myself pay back? Yourself, right, right. <laughs> so I, what, what mm -hmm. sense did that make, you mm -hmm. know? But then he wanted to fight it. So I mean, it, it's, you, I guess it's, just, it, it's all about money in the end to them, but in the end to me, it was about my son. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. just what it was. Mm -hmm. God bless you. What, what are people doing in community now? Are you involved or active in any uh, anti-police brutality or anti-police violence work? Or do you know folks who are doing that work and what are, what are they doing? Or what do you think people should be doing? I'm not into it mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. um, I chose that, uh, you know, my, like I said, my son was 15 when he was um, taken. I had a three-year-old and I had two other younger ones. Um, at the time, not to mention, you know, I had two older ones. Um, I decided that I was just gonna try and live life for my family and with my family. Mm -hmm. I didn't want them involved because you, you also, you go through a moment, well, we went through a moment of where if we heard sirens, you know, like post-traumatic stress, mm -hmm. you heard sirens, I went crazy. If I wasn't home 
or my kids wasn't home and I heard sirens or somebody said it was a shooting or a stabbing somewhere, it, it was, for me, it was, you know, just this, it was a horrible feeling, especially, you know, you have teenagers, they, they should be able to go outside, you know. Uh, we tried to keep them in the house, keep them in a bubble, and we, we couldn't do that. But it, that was the hardest, you know, one of the hardest things was to just know if something was going on in a side of town where your kids were. Um, as I have kids that go to Commerce right now, um, and there was an incident there at one point. And you just go hysterical, you know, you don't, you don't know if it's your kids that's involved and it's hard. So in the beginning, it, it, we tried to shelter them and tried to keep them um, in the house and not going anywhere. But I couldn't see me being part of any group when I couldn't, in the beginning, I hadn't healed myself. You know, it's still hard. As I said, today is still hard for me. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I have wonderful people in my life, um, my kids, you know, um, and, 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 a, and a good host of support, family and friends. But I, I couldn't do it. I, I know even with the strength that people think I may have, I can't. And I, and I feel like I need to be able to protect my, my children that are still walking the earth mm -hmm. um so i didn't involve myself in anything mm -hmm. how how are you dealing with the trauma i mean what what are the things that you do who are the people who help support you to kind of help you move through because at the end of the day we're talking about loss of human life and a human being who's still here as you say trying to raise her family right and oftentimes we become names we become you know tamirs we become you know delanos we become Rakias, we become those folks who are lost and we sometimes forget, oftentimes forget their family members who are still here who have to move through it or try to deal with it. How, how are you dealing with and moving through or just navigating day to day um, the pain and trauma that you're dealing with? How am I doing it? Yeah. With God and his right hand man. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing I can say. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I have a good host of family and friends mm -hmm. and a lot of support, you know, um, and just counseling, I, you know, at, I, I thought that I could at some point do it by myself, you know, with my family and friends. And, you know, once this trial, the, once the trial came up, it, it posed an even bigger problem because I didn't, I didn't know that I wasn't there. So at the trial, they painted this whole picture and, and then I had to hear uh, his 15-year-old friend go on stage, um, go on, on, on the stand. And that just broke, you know, that would break you down to see, you know, this young man just to think about not only did he lose his best friend, but now he has to tell the story about losing his best friend. So I had to find, you know, counseling. And, and, and like I mentioned, I have the, the most awesome support that I, I you know, I don't think that I would make it through without my support system. So mm -hmm. that, that is how I got through. Mm -hmm. What final words do you want to tell the audience? Is there a message you want to give people who are listening to you, a message about what needs to happen, what needs to change, what role we can play? Uh, how do we survive in our communities that seem to be besieged by, you know, Oftentimes, people who don't care about our lives, just who we are and the bodies we're born in, you know, the way we move. 
whatever message you have, I mean. Because I can't speak, you know, for mm -hmm. others and how they think and how they may feel about certain people and, you know, um, certain races. You know, I just, what I have taught my kids is, you know, there's a lot of people out there, whether it's police or not, that, you know, that are not great people. And the only thing that you could do is be good yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, just try to stay out of trouble. And, you know, if, if something is happening, don't don't make yourself the center of attention, mm -hmm. you know, and put yourself in it. Just just try to, because it's hard. There's, there's no way you could be an innocent bystander, you know, and something can happen, so. But your baby wasn't in, your, your baby wasn't getting itself in any trouble. So what, what do you say to folks who say, but he didn't, he wasn't out looking for trouble? I mean, Tamir was in a park playing with a toy gun. They selling stores that we supposed to buy. You know, they, they were in spaces doing what young people do. I mean, they, how, how do we? I don't know. I don't know. I I'm just, you know, how to. I can't speak for nobody else. Know, the only thing that I can say is it was my son's time. Yeah. It was my son. We do everything. We can do everything. We can comply. We can do everything. And so many of us are still getting snuffed. We're we're losing our lives. How do we? Well, there's some things that we can't do, and there's some things that are beyond our control. You know, and like I said, I can't speak for anybody else, but I could speak for myself and how I feel and what I know to be real. Mm -hmm. And it just it, it's it's sad that my son had to go that way but I feel like he had a higher purpose. Mm -hmm. And God called him home, he went, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I can't speak for anyone else. Mm -hmm. And it might be hard, it, you know, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow. And somebody else out there might be like, you know, I would feel this way and, you know, I would rally and I would, you know, do X, Y, and Z, you know, but what can I, you know, there's, and you'd be all right with that, though, right? <laughs> Would you, you know, be all right? They, I mean, mm -hmm. they could, you right. know? Mm -hmm. But I have, like I said, I have my other children to look after. Right. And in order for me to live, some people need to do things like that to heal. Mm -hmm. That's not what I needed to do to heal. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't need to go out and, and, and chase the bad guy. Mm -hmm. I needed to look after what I had left, what mm -hmm. I had been left with. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that, that was my choice. Mm -hmm. Kisha Owens. that I'll be presenting tonight, um, I'm asking us to, to answer some questions for ourselves and for our community, um, uh, and quietly to yourself, and there's no right or wrong answer, they're just questions that we need to pose to ourselves as we contemplate um, issues of racial profiling and police violence. So the first question I want to put out there is what is the first name that comes to mind when I say police brutality? 
The answer tends to be generational, but almost universally male. So for old heads like me, it's Rodney King. For younger folks, it might be Amadou Diallo, Oscar Grant, Eric Garner, Mike Brown, Freddie Gray. For folks in Springfield, it might be Paul Cumbie. It might be Justin Douglas. It might be Delana Walker. It might be those 71 folks, those 131 folks who filed complaints that were not properly investigated, some of which were filed by women. But the question I have for all of us is, did any of these names come to mind? And maybe for some of us they did, because Dr. Rhonda just raised them for us. Or any of these. And if not, why not? And if so, how were their experiences similar to or different from those of the men whose stories drive our analysis and responses to racial profiling and police violence? And how would centering their stories change the conversation? So Eleanor Bumpers was shot by New York City Housing Police in 1986, six years before Rodney King was beaten by the LAPD on camera, as she was being evicted from her public housing unit for being behind on her rent, which was less than $100 a month. If her case had become iconic in the same way that King's did, maybe in addition to talking about driving while black, we'd also be talking about living while elderly, poor, black, female, and disabled. Latanya Haggerty was killed the same year as Amadou Diallo. In her case, instead of a street stop, it was a traffic stop. Instead of a wallet being mistaken for a gun, it was a cell phone. But ultimately, at the end, she's just as dead as Amadou Diallo. And if her story had garnered the same national attention as Diallo's did, maybe we wouldn't still today be issuing a call to say her name and recognize black women as targets of police violence. This target that we think about might be uniformly black and male, but one assumption is that they're all straight and not transgender. So what about Jihad Akbar, who, unfortunately, there's no image of Jihad, um, or even any coverage beyond a couple of articles in the San Francisco uh, papers, but he was a black gay man who was killed by the San Francisco Police Department in 2002. Lots of people know about Eric Garner, but few people know about Roseanne Miller, who was a seven-month pregnant black woman who was put in a chokehold by the NYPD just weeks after Eric Garner was killed by one. And like Garner, who was being harassed by police for allegedly selling new cigarettes, she was being harassed by police engaging in broken windows policing. And in her case, the interaction started because police threatened to ticket her and her husband for grilling outside their own home. And fortunately, unlike Garner, she lived to tell the tale, but thinking about her experience doesn't only broaden our understanding of how broken windows policing can come literally right up to your doorstep, but also points us to the need for attention to police use of force against pregnant women. You heard Dr. Anderson bring in the name and memory of Tanisha Anderson, who just three months after Mike Brown was killed by Cleveland police officers who had been called to help her in a mental health crisis. But her case didn't spark a rebellion across the country. It definitely did in her hometown, but not across the country. And it hasn't played the same iconic role as Brown's continues to play in the current movement and moment, uh, or moment and movement to end police violence. And Maya Hall, a black trans woman, was killed just outside of Baltimore just weeks before Freddie Gray's case rocked Baltimore and the nation for essentially taking a wrong turn onto National Security Agency property as many, many people have done before and since. But she wasn't given the benefit of the doubt. She and her unarmed passenger were shot first and asked questions later. And her black trans life, much like Freddie Gray's, was treated as if it was of absolutely no consequence. Black women and LGBT people are uniquely impacted by police violence, but not exclusively. But tonight, my brief remarks are going to focus on the experiences of black women and LGBTQ people, both because those are the communities that I'm a part of and organize in, but also as a contribution to the current national conversation sparked by Black Lives Matter. 
The next question I ask us to consider is what's the first image that comes to mind when I say racial profiling? Was it Sandra Bland? And while her experience catapulted black women's experiences of driving while black into the forefront of the national consciousness, it was certainly not an anomaly. In fact, it wasn't even an anomaly in her own life. It was not the first time she'd been stopped. And when nationwide uh, traffic stop or street stop data is disaggregated by both race and gender, which it rarely is, but when it is, the rates of racial disparities and stops among women are identical to those among men. In fact, in Ferguson, the year before Mike Brown was stopped and killed, the group that was subjected to the most traffic stops than any other group was black women. And once stopped, women and LGBT people of color experience really gender-specific forms of violation, such as, for instance, harassment about ID if the gender marker on your ID doesn't match the gender marker the cop thinks should be on your ID or that you might be expressing. Um, groping inappropriate comments during frisks and searches so prevalent in New York City, young black women call stop and frisk, stop and grope. Mm -hmm. Sexual harassment, sexual assault, rape, sexual extortion. And maybe this is not the first image that comes to your mind when I say racial profiling, but this is a tool of racially gendered police uh, profiling. Because sometimes a traffic stop or a street stop will yield condoms, which are then confiscated by police and cited as evidence of intent to engage in prostitution-related offenses. Of course, that doesn't happen to everybody. So for instance, my client, Rihanna Coombs, is a black trans woman who was out at the club, and as every one of us who have been at the club have done, decided at three in the morning it was time to go get a bite, also at McDonald's, and on the way there was stopped by police officers who then used the nine New York City condoms, condoms made, branded, and distributed by the city of New York as evidence that she was not walking at McDonald's, but walking with the intention of engaging in prostitution. Now, of course, that would have happened to a young white man across the street on the New York University campus. He could be carrying as many condoms as they'd be like falling out of his pocket, and he would just be following, you know, good public health messaging, and maybe a little excessively hopeful, but there certainly would be no loitering for the purpose of prostitution charges. So, for women of color, trans and not trans, um, and gender non-conforming people, condoms in essence become both a tool of racial, gender, and sexuality-based profiling. Also, this is a way in which the state interferes with contraception and our reproductive rights and justice in ways that are often invisible in conversations about access to abortion or reproductive health tools and services. <laughs> My next question is, what's the first image that comes to mind when I say police violence? For most people, it's something like this. The person being bleaten at the, at the bottom um, is a black man, and the person doing the beating is a white cop. But even if we use that framework, if we extend our view along the axes of gender and sexuality alongside race, different subjects come into view, like my clients Tiffany Jimenez and Jeanette Gray. In their case, the visual was the same, but the officer on top was black, and the people under the baton were black lesbians, and the things he shouted at them as they were being beaten, dyke-ass bitch, were a variation on the usual. If we expand our lens along axes of gender and sexuality, we also start to see gender-specific forms of police brutality like that experience by Nicola Robinson, who's seen here pointing to the spot where a Chicago police officer punched her hard, hard enough to leave a huge bruise that lasted for weeks, hard enough to send her to the hospital in early labor. And the words he yelled at her as he punched her, you black bitch, you're lucky you don't kill your fucking baby, make it completely clear that it was his actions towards her were informed by both her race, her gender, and the long history of devaluing black motherhood in this country. And generally the first thing that comes to mind when I say police brutality is excessive and fatal force. People don't think about police sexual violence, such as perpetrated by Oklahoma police officer Daniel Holsclaw, who was tried 
convicted and sentenced for sexually assaulting 13 black women. And his case prompted um, the Associated Press to conduct a year-long investigation that revealed that a thousand officers actually had lost their law enforcement licenses over a six-year or five-year period. Um, but those were just the ones who were caught and who were held accountable. And law enforcement officials and advocates and everyone in between will tell you that number is just the type, tip of the iceberg. That whole squad's case and his targets were only unusual in that he was caught and convicted and sentenced to 263 years in prison. In fact, sexual misconduct and rape by law enforcement agents is the second most frequently reported form of police sexual or police violence after excessive force. But it's not the second most frequently talked about. And it's not a problem with just a few rogue officers who can be made an example of, like Daniel Holtzclaw. It's part of the regular arsenal of police brutality in the United States. So in this study of close to 550 arrests over a two-year period of officers for sexual misconduct, um, over half of them involved on-duty forcible sexual assault, a third of them forcible rape, a fifth of them forcible fondling, and a quarter of them involved people under the age of 18. In fact, one New York City study found that two in five young women report sexual harassment by police officers. And I see this in my neighborhood where young black women are walking to and from school and getting hollowed at by officers on their way there and on the way back every single day. Another study found that LGBTQ youth are twice as likely to report sexual misconduct as their heterosexual peers. In New Orleans, 59% of trans people who uh, responded to a survey conducted by the youth organization Breakout had been extorted for sex by police officers who threatened to arrest them and ticket them. Homeless women, low-income women, lesbian, trans women, women who are or perceived to be involved in the drug or sex trades, gender non-conforming people, are all particularly targets for sexual violence by police officers who, like Holtzclaw, trade on fear of retaliation and the assumption that if they do come forward, they won't be believed. Unfortunately, all too often, that assumption is proven correct. So 10 years before Holtzclaw's case, there was a guy out in Eugene, Oregon, who was found to engage in a very similar pattern of abuse, and his case, records show that people had come forward and complained over a period of years. And the records also show that their complaints were, dis were dismissed as the grumblings of junkies and prostitutes. And in fact, the Department of Justice investigation in Baltimore found a very similar pattern that just happened there. Police sexual violence also takes the form of racialized, violent, and degrading strip searches that are conducted in the context of the war on drugs. So Brandy and Alexandra, for instance, were two women who were stopped by an officer who claimed uh, smelled marijuana on them when they were coming back from the beach, and then next thing you know, they were subjected to a roadside strip search and cafe search. Sexual violence also takes the form of unlawful, degrading, and humiliating searches to assign people gender based on their anatomy. And that was what, was the, what the experience of Juan Evans from the Racial Justice Action Center, who was a black trans man who was stopped for driving while black and then subjected to a strip search to assign him a gender based on anatomy. Juan turned his violation into victory by fighting um, against the East Point, Georgia Police Department, and one of those progressive policies in the country. And gender searches are not the only ways in which officers police the borders of gender. So people like Duana Johnson, a black trans woman um, who lived in Memphis, who are perceived by police to be gender non-conforming, are subject to verbal harassment, to slurs, to abuse, to gender-specific forms of racial profiling and police violence. So Duana, for instance, was walking down the street in her hometown um, at night, and like so many black women, was profiled for loitering for the purposes of prostitution, based solely on the fact that she was black, she was trans, she was dressed in a particular, particular way, and she was out late at night. There was no client, there was no money, there was no agreement to engage in sex. And then when they brought her to the police station, they called her over to be fingerprinted by saying, hey, faggot, come over. And Duana said, it's not my name, it's not my name I chose for myself, it's not the name my mother gave me, I'm not coming over. And the officer responded, 
by wrapping handcuffs around his um, knuckles, male handcuffs around his knuckles, and proceeding to just administer um, a beating. And hers was caught on video like Rodney King's. Um, and you can find it online now. But unfortunately, um, it didn't spark a national uprising. And in 2008, just days after the nation elected the first black president, Duana, um, like so many black trans women, experienced fatal violence and was killed in the streets of Memphis, the third black trans woman to die on a two-year period. So she never saw her day in court for injustice. Experiences like hers are facilitated by patterns of policing, like broken windows policing, that basically allow police officers almost unlimited discretion to engage in racial and gender profiling and poverty-based policing. We've talked a lot over the past year about bathroom policing. It's not just in states that pass laws like North Carolina that it happens. Police officers can use offenses like disorderly conduct to arrest anyone they think whose body doesn't belong in a particular bathroom, and they do all the time. Bathrooms are also a site in which sexual, racialized perceptions of sexuality are policed. Um, gay men of color, gender nonconforming people of color are often arrested in bathrooms on the allegations that they're engaged in lewd conduct. And unfortunately, similar forms of racial profiling and police violence take place in the context of responses to calls for help and assistance, as was the case with Tanisha Anderson, as was the case for Tanisha Fonville, who was killed by a Charlotte police officer responding to a dispute between her and her girlfriend, as was the case for Aura Rosser, who was killed by Ann Arbor police responding to a domestic violence call. And if those calls are not fatal, they often result in the arrest of uh, black women survivors of police violence, or black trans survivors of police violence, or black gender nonconforming survivors of violence. Um, and they're also frequently sites of sexual harassment and assault. So what's the first image that comes to mind when I say violence against women or hate crime? So any of the things that I've just been talking about for the last 10 minutes? Are they not clear examples of both? So what do the stories I've shared today mean for us as we talk and think and organize around police violence? It means we have to expand our understanding and our discourse around who's affected. We have to shine a light on different subjects. We have to organize around different forms of police violence. We need to expand our agendas for policy reform and make sure that they're inclusive of both gender and sexuality um, and the experiences of women and LGBTQ people of color. And in some cases, thanks to advocacy, we have succeeded in obtaining policy recommendations and reforms that do center our experiences, as in um, the final report of the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. Um, and those might be helpful to you as you engage with the DOJ here in Springfield, um, but policy uh, is only as good as it's enforced, and it's only as good as it's um, used to actually prevent uh, police violence. We don't need to start from scratch. There's lots of groups out here already doing this work, one of which is Out Front, which you're going to hear about. I just said Out Front. I can't believe I did that. <laughs> out Now, one of my favorite organizations, who we're going to hear a lot about in a second. Um, but ultimately, uh, what we need to do is really commit to expanding our analysis and our approaches and um, our agendas to incorporate the voices and the experiences and the perspectives of women and LGBTQ people who are impacted by racial disparities in the criminal legal system and in mass incarceration. And we also need to recognize that by bringing black women and LGBT people um, and queer and gender nonconforming people to the center of our analysis, we're actually going to have to engage in a wholesale reevaluation of society's reliance on law enforcement-based responses to violence, to poverty, and to mental health crises. For many of us, there is no safety in policing, and our challenge is to develop visions for safety that don't involve the violence of the police. Because in the end, it's only by bringing 
all of police violence against all people and by valuing all black lives, leaving no one behind, that we're ultimately going to achieve liberation for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. So now I am honored and privileged to be in conversation with one of the real experts on this issue. Shay Shay Quest will be joining me. So Shay Shay, we've heard that you're um, an organizer without now, and with uh, BLM 413. Um, how do you come to this work, and what is the sort of framework that you bring to your organizing in both those spaces? Word. Uh, so first off, I just want to hold space for all of y'all that just sat through the PowerPoint, and that was a lot. And I'm doing this work, and even though I know most of these stories, it still hurts. <laughs> And it's a lot to process, so I just want to hold that. And I also um, just want to say that ladies and gentlemen and stuff of that nature was used. And I just want to shout out and know that I see the folks that don't fall under those categories. And I'm glad that y'all are here, too. Um, so I am, well, I just turned 24 yesterday. Um, Happy birthday. <laughs> thanks. Um, I'm a afro thyanex femme, queer, disabled, poor, I mean, the layers of which that I engage in this world are deep. Um, I work from a black, trans, feminist, um, youth-led framework, um, a really intersectional framework. <laughs> Sorry, this was a real, this was a lot for me. Um, um, I come to my work as a whole human being. So I come with my trauma, I come with my own like sexual violence trauma and things of that nature. Um, and I come holding my community that is constantly forgotten. Uh, yeah. Sorry, that was deep. No, I, I, I hear you, and I, um, I often dissociate in the middle of that presentation. I've given it a million times um, as a survivor of many forms of violence, including police violence, and I've struggled over the years with how much to present to counter the invisibility of our people's lives and the rage at that and wanting to put that out there and yeah. then also not wanting to put us back through it yeah, it's while true. we're talking about it. So I, I appreciate your feedback and anyone else who has feedback on how to tone that up, down, it's adjust. It's one of those both and things. Exactly. You can't kind of talk about it without really being blatant about it. It sort of just kind of goes hand in hand. No, for real, but it's a lot. But I think you did a beautiful job. <laughs> well, thank you. It's, it's, and I, I am able to do it because of um, the kinds of challenges and analysis that um, people like yourself continue to bring to the movement. And I often uh, 
I mean, I've been doing this work for 25 years, and I'm so grateful and honored um, and inspired by the leadership and vision of BLM, BYP 100, unabashedly, unapologetically coming to this work through a black queer feminist lens. And I never, I saw a BYP 100 shirt the other day that said, you know, through a black queer feminist lens. I was like, I never thought I would see that shirt. <laughs> Not just one, but like 50 of them at a police brutality rally. Like I'm following that shirt wherever it's going. So um, what has it meant for you to be organizing through a black queer feminist lens around police violence and policing issues through Out Now and through BLM 413? Wow, it's meant, it's meant multiple different things. I think it was holding space for myself. Um, it was holding space for my friends, um, my chosen family that I have grown, um, my youth. My youth are primarily black and brown at Out Now. Um, and every time I go on my Facebook or I see the news and I see another life is lost, it's sometimes so hard for me to go into work um, because I think about them and I think about how marginalized they are, and then I think about how nobody will talk about them if something were to happen to them. Um, so some days I'm like, it's the most fulfilling work that I could do, um, and it's the work that I will probably do for the rest of my life. But some days it is so, it has its like beautiful moments because I get to watch these youth grow up and cultivate themselves and discover themselves and to find space and home in out now and in that community but it is so hard sometimes knowing that as soon as they walk out of those doors i can't do anything but hope that they're gonna be okay and ask them how they're getting home and sometimes just be like here's the bus fare just take the bus instead because um, i mean i've been I, i've been like i've had people posted up like cops posted up outside my mom's house um, especially after um, the A14 shutdown at the X, um, where a whole bunch of us had gotten arrested. Um, and I had cops posted outside, like kitty corner to my apartment and things like that. And then like went to my mom's house and there was a cop, like a squad car parked outside her house. And it was just like the most intense thing. So I, it felt like putting myself out there made myself a bigger target, but how could I not talk about this work? How could I not talk about me in this work, right? So how could I see all these names up here and not think about myself and not think about my community? And you were talking about like police violence and the name that comes up for you and Islan Nettles came up a lot for me, um, who was a trans woman who was beat outside of the police station. Um, and nobody knew anything, right? Because it's that. And we live in communities where, you know, trans lives aren't important, right? So when something happens to them, who mourns for them? Because our communities don't. I go to tons of these events. I get asked to speak at different things, you know, out now. And BLM gets asked to come out and do a lot of different um, police brutality focused conversations. And I sit and I listen. Um, and nine times out of 10, we're the only folks who talk about us. Um, and it's exhausting. <laughs> so it's, it's like this beautiful, like both and, like I, and I 
wholeheartedly love my work. I will support <laughs> these youth until I can't do it anymore um, and support myself and my community and stand and see and hold my community and remember them and say their names. Um, but it's, it's also tiring to do this, um, to feel like you're doing this sometimes by yourself, like with like a handful of people and it's hard, like we talked about, we talked about Rakia Boyd and they had a rally for Rakia out in New York and a hundred people showed up. After we had been in the streets, thousands, 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 thousands strong, night after night after yes. night after night for Eric Garner. And yes. And you then, know, at some point, young uh, queer and trans folks I was working with were like, I'm not going out for that because they never come out for us. And, 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 and I struggle I, with that. I feel that. I right? struggle with that wholeheartedly. As a BLM organizer, I've been in spaces with BLM organizers from across the country, from out of the country. Um, and they can be just as harmful as the people, like, it's, it's, anti-blackness and internalized racism is a thing, misogyny is still a thing, like, so we can be in these spaces, but that doesn't mean that, like, just because we're, we're, we're black together, it doesn't erase my other identities, and there's only so much of those that certain folks want to hold, and there's only so much of that that people want to see get free. So it's the respectable black folks, it's the cishet black folks, it's the ones with college degrees, it's the ones with that hold down jobs that aren't getting pregnant irresponsibly, that you know decide that the gender on their birth certificate is the one that they're set with. Like those are the people that these communities and these conversations continuously want to be free, even though the work is being done by folks like me folks like my community who constantly go out and sit and hear all of this and see all of this and we know this and yet we still go out. Like I still go out. I still sit and I still hurt and I still like hold the space for them and I still pray to the ancestors for them even though when it comes down to it, like if something were to happen to me, I have a handful of community who would show up for me. And I know that for a fact, because I've seen it a million times over. Because Ayanna Stanley Jones was a seven-year-old girl asleep in her bed. And we talk about Tamir, right? But we don't talk about Ayanna. She was sleeping. She was seven-year-old asleep in her bed. And we talk about respectability politics. And I think, what is more respectful than being asleep? Like, how can I be violent? How can I be angry? Like, and then why is it not okay for black women to be angry? Because like, Corinne was like, you're not gonna take me out like that. If you're gonna come for me, come for me. And I'm going to be prepared, right? So we uphold all of this when it's cishet blackness. Like, Malcolm X, it was okay for him to have guns and do all this stuff. But then when Corinne was like, I'm gonna have guns and I'm not gonna sit here and I'm not gonna lay down and die. She was crucified for protecting her kids and for protecting herself. So it's, we live in, we do this work in this constant double standard and it's, it's hard. It's hard, <laughs> that's, that's really all it is to it. But I can't stop doing the work because if I stop doing the work, who fights for me, right? because I can't stop doing the work because I'm not some cishet, like, it just, I can't. 
because I fight for me, I fight for my community, and there's only so many of us. So even if the queer community stopped doing the work right now, there's like... Which we can't. We oh. can't, no, because if not, it's just like we might as well just sign ourselves up for the slaughter and just, you know, throw in the towel right now. But there will be thousands of people still showing up to these protests, still erasing us, whether we're there or not, but we still show up because it's our work and it's because we need what we need to do to survive, but because for me to be free, you have to be free. For me, for, for all black lives to matter, I don't care about your politics. I don't care about where you are in the world, be where you are, but for me to be free, you need to be free. I, I mean, there's just so many ways in which that manifests in our organizing, and I think that um, when you just said that, it reminded me of a protest that happened in Atlanta for a woman named Alexia Christian, who uh, was killed by Atlanta Police Department, and black, queer, and trans folks were out protesting, and then some men in the community were sort of saying, why are you not lifting up our names? Why is it, why are you just talking about women? It happens all the all time. time. <laughs> all the time. And then the police started coming for those guys. And guess who stood for them? And guess who got between the police and yeah, them? And guess who provided security for them? Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And so I think that that's something that, um, you know, it needs to stop being invisible. I think that there's only one role that um, black women who are, uh, you know, understood as cisgender and as heterosexual are allowed to play, and that's as grieving mothers um, mm -hmm. in this movement. And I think, um, and even then, only grieving mothers of young black men, right? Yeah. Sandra mm -hmm. Bland's mom, Geneva Reed um, Veal, gets to be up there as kind of the one representative. But yeah. there are hundreds of families of black women, black queer folks. And when we talk about families of black queer folks and trans folks, we're talking about like uh, Ilan Nettle's family that was larger than her uh, family of origin, right? Mm -hmm. It's her family of community, of mm -hmm. queer community. Um, and those families don't get seen or valued or um, lifted up in the conversation in the same way. Yeah, um, and we were talking about this a little bit before uh, we got here um, and talking about how this panel was a, a panel, it was meant to be all women. Um, and I don't identify as a woman, like I identify as a femme and I just kind of like to exist as Shay um, and as a whole person. Um, but I can still, I still experience violence as a femme body. I still experience these things in the same sort of lights, even though there's, there's layers to existing in my queerness and that kind of thing. But I still experience all of these things. Um, and it's so hard, it's so hard, I think, being a femme body in these works. I'm being not a man. Real talk, being not a cis het man in this work is exhausting because not only do I have to do my own emotional labor, but I have to carry emotional labor for all these niggas who don't want to carry their own emotional labor because apparently I'm their mama. Um, so it's just like, okay, they come up here and they like, but what about me? Did, what about you? What about, they talk about you all the time. Sit down, shut up. Yeah, but we do. We're out there. We're yeah. out here in the streets but, but, with you. But the, yeah, and that's the thing, right? So we sit and we talk about how men, like, I've been in spaces where the men want us to highlight that 
they're, they're standing up for their sis and their fem, like their sisters and their femme folk. And I'm just like, so you want me to give you cookies because you're doing what you're supposed to do? <laughs> no. Because I don't get cookies for coming out here to do this work for you. Nobody sits here and put coin in my pocket because I'm out here fighting for you. Nobody highlights the folks talking about shit that's not relevant to you. Like, they, no, I'm not giving you nothing. Like, good for you. That's what you're supposed to do is being a decent human being. It's the same thing as, like, when white folks are like, but I have pack friends, and this is all the work that I do. No, I don't. You're supposed to do that. You are supposed to do that. Like, I, that's just, no. I don't have the spoons for that. I'm going to highlight the trans folk out here doing the work, the ones that aren't getting paid, who do all this work, and who don't have homes, like Miss Major, who has a GoFundMe. Like, why? Miss Major should be living up her whole life at this point. But because she's a black trans woman, she has GoFundMe. Like, it's, it's outlandish to me. And I think the disparities just are, are so in, just in your face that it's so hard for me to understand how they're so invisible. And I understand that that's misogyny and misogynoir and capitalism and all those things. But it's like, damn, son, do you know what y'all would do without black women? For real. Nothing. <laughs> right. Do you know what you would do without black queer folks? Nothing. Do you know what you would do without black trans folk? Nothing. Like, gender nonconform. Nothing. Like, it's these, these, the most marginalized people are doing the work to highlight, to talk about these things. And then it's like, I scroll through my Facebook and the chant is just trans life. After trans life, we talk about Brandy and Jazz and Mercedes and Goddess. And I could just go on and on and on. But I bet you not even half of y'all know who I'm talking about. And part of what we talked about earlier, too, is that that comes a little bit from the current moments focused on uh, police violence as opposed to what uh, Dr. Rhonda was talking about earlier, which is state-sponsored, state-sanctioned mm -hmm. violence. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we focus only on police violence, uh, we'll still see Maya Hall, mm -hmm. we'll still see Kayla Moore, we'll still see Niza Morris, we'll still see Treasure, but those are black trans women who were killed directly by police or at least, you know, fairly closely directly. Um, but we don't see the names that you just mentioned because they weren't killed by police, but in many ways they were killed yeah. by police. And it's also, those are also passing trans folk, right? Because we don't talk about non-passing trans folk. We don't talk about what happens when non-passing trans folk die and their chosen family and their chosen community doesn't get to speak for them and doesn't get to say, no, this is who they were and this is who they are and they get labeled by whatever was on their birth certificate. So there's, I can bet, I can put money on it that there are hundreds and thousands of trans folk who have been died, who have died, who have been murdered, and the community and their community made it to erase them and made them cis and made them the gender that they were born with because they were uncomfortable with this person living in their truth. It's that, it's that, it's erasure, that the level of erasure is so violent. <laughs> and it's frustrating, and we talk about like intersectionality and 
and that's my framework. So, like, state-sanctioned violence is so much deeper than just the police. <laughs> like, we can talk about the medical industrial complex. We can talk about the school to prison pipeline. We can talk about the way in which certain things are offered to certain folks, you know. We can talk about the way that they stopped allowing kids to pick their schools here. Because it was like, nah, we need to keep the little hood rats in the hood schools where we don't put no money and keep the rich white kids in the schools with all the nice things because that's just the setup, right? We can talk about out now just lost one of our members this past year um, because he was struggling with alcohol dependency and couldn't get into a program. And that's because he was a queer black femme who existed in this world, in a world that couldn't hold him, you know? And it's all of those things. It's like we talk so much about police brutality, but we don't talk about the actual like white supremacy um, that cultivates all of this, right? And we don't we don't talk about the layers in which like police were cultivated. Like I'm an abolitionist, and I don't think police should exist ever. I think if we could wipe out the whole thing, it'd be the best thing in the history of everything. Um, because police, um, if if you do your if you do your work, police were slave catchers, right? So they was out here catching niggas. Like, oh, you know, you belong to this white person. They were also land stealers. See, right? like they are. But they were they were Dakota. cultivated to protect white men and white men's property, right? And then. Abraham Lincoln was like, no, black folks need to be free. And they were like, shit, how do we get away with this? Still do the same thing, but not be slave catchers. Ah, we'll put on a uniform and call ourselves the police. Modern day slave catchers, right? Because when you put a black body into the system, it creates money for capitalism, and it provides money to these private pigeons, and it puts money in all these big people's you know, pockets. It's all just modern day slavery. It's just like, let us tell you this story that we're trying to save your community by policing it, and by tearing apart your families, because, that's the, because putting people in a box is somehow rehabilitation when when you look at the history of slavery and they made those cages, was to make black people go insane. And it was to make them so weak and they used to not feed them. Well, I mean, they still don't feed them. Um, so that they would be so weak, by the time they put them in slave ships, they wouldn't be strong enough to fight back. And that's what these systems do, right? It's all this psychological, mental, physical warfare by putting somebody through the system, and not only them, but their family that has to stand by and watch this and now figure out how to exist without this key member of their family, right? It's just modern-day slavery is really when it, what it comes down to. <laughs> so... In light of that reality, mm -hmm. what is, um, as we close out and then turn over to Q&A for all of the panelists, what is, what is your vision, what is our vision for safely, th safety, true safety, through a black, queer, feminist, trans-centered lens? Well, the police gotta go. This has got to go. I don't have time for that. I just don't. No, real talk. So we existed way before the police. Like, police were created after slavery to protect slavery, right? So we had community accountability. We had ways for the community to gather and 
to acknowledge people's pain and trauma, but to also hold the perpetrator of this pain accountable to the community. Because not only have you harmed this person, you've harmed their community, right? So we need to find ways to get back to communicating with each other, right? Because it set us up so that we don't communicate with each other and we don't engage with each other and we don't take care of each other because capitalism has taught us that it's all about the one, but in reality, it's all about taking care of your community and making sure that your community is okay. Um, I, I wanna be able to live in my truth <laughs> and walk down the street and not be stressed. <laughs> Uh, because honestly, I'm more stressed when I see a blue light than I am when I hear gunshots, because that's just the reality of the situation. I'm like, well, but a cop will roll down, and I'm like, do I have my ID? Do I have my stuff? And then I'm like, well, if he wants to, he's going to shoot me anyway, so why does it matter? Right? So it's, it's that. It's, I, want, I want us to be able to exist. Like, the drug war, all them drugs need to come above ground because y'all need to stop playing. <laughs> like, people, people need access to you know, help on demand. Like, I need help, I'm struggling, and this is what I need, and that needs to be there. We need to stop shaming folks for how they choose to heal. We need to stop shaming folks, oh, like, you've made this decision to shoot up, you've made this, no. They're hurting, That's, they're healing. I don't care how you heal. My job is to try to keep you as safe as possible in your healing and whatever that looks like, right? We need to stop shaming sex workers because what they do to get their coin ain't none of your business. Not, not a damn dime of their money is any of your business because it's their body and they can do what they want. Like.